This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. While this podcast doesn't really tell a linear story and will jump back and forth through time, it's actually best to start at the beginning. So I encourage you to go back and do that and start listening at episode one. Episode six. The point of the journey is not to arrive. From the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Anything can happen. Rush. Prime mover. One. The Grand Ole Opry. I played at the Grand Ole Opry for the very first time on May 24th, 2014 with a country artist named Chuck Wicks. I had been a Nashville resident for only just over a year at that time. Playing at the Opry was not something I ever had on my career bingo card, but there I was. It was surreal, to say the very least. I had lived in the alternative rock and pop world for my entire career up to that point. It was a major shift, and it took some getting used to. When I was a very young child, I would sometimes stay with my grandparents on my mom's side in Corning, New York, when my parents would go away on vacations. Back then, there were extremely limited TV choices, but it seemed to me like the show Hee Haw was somehow always on at my grandparents' house. I would watch it as much as I could. Country music never figured very heavily for me early on, but I really did love Hee Haw. I was mesmerized by the guitar playing of Buck Owens and Roy Clark. I also had a huge crush on the Mandrell sisters who were on the show regularly. On a side note, when I first moved to Nashville, I landed a random gig with Erlene Mandrell's oldest daughter, who was singing backing vocals for the band. I was inexorably drawn to her from the first moment I laid eyes on her, before I even knew who she was. And she was every bit as insanely talented as her famous mom and aunts, which made her even more attractive. And when I found out she was a Mandrell, it all became very clear. I can't speak for her, but I'm fairly sure she felt the same way about me. Sometimes you just have a connection to someone that can't be explained. It's human chemistry. She and I had a very short-lived fling that sadly never turned into anything more because of extenuating circumstances in both of our lives and the normal complications of relationships. The timing just wasn't right. She eventually went her way and I went mine with no hard feelings. I still count her as a dear friend and I have a lot of admiration for her even though I haven't had any contact with her for many, many years now. She has since married and has a child, and she seems really happy, at least as near as I can tell from posts on social media. I hope she is. While I wouldn't classify myself as a huge fan or connoisseur of country music, I can't remember a time in my life when it wasn't in my periphery in some way. Artists like Eddie Rabbit, the Oak Ridge Boys, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Alabama, the Gatlin Brothers, 
and especially Waylon Jennings, all managed to reach some part of me with their music when I was a kid. Landing a gig with Chuck Wicks when I moved to Nashville was my doorway into a genre that I had largely not paid much attention to for many decades. Chuck was one of the participants on the American reality series Nashville, which aired on Fox for two episodes before its cancellation in mid-2007. In that same year, he signed to RCA Records. His debut single, Stealing Cinderella, was the biggest debut for any new country artist in all of 2007. It was also the fastest-climbing debut country single that year, reaching number 5 on the country charts in January and number 56 on the Billboard Hot 100. The song was included on Chuck's debut album, Starting Now, which reached number 7 on the top country album charts. His song, All I Ever Wanted, was released in 2008 as the album's second single and hit number 14 by the end of the year. A third single, Man of the House, followed in January 2009, entering the top 40 in February of that year. Chuck's second album, which contained the single Hold That Thought, was released in 2010 and debuted at number 55 on the Hot Country Songs chart. It was followed by Old School, which made number 51 on the same chart. Chuck also wrote the song I Don't Do Lonely Well that appeared on Jason Aldean's Night Train album. I got the gig with Chuck through my friends, drummer Tom Hurst and guitarist Chris Nix, who I was in a band with for many years during my time in Gainesville. They had both moved to Nashville several years ahead of me and had already made significant inroads in the music community there. I ended up playing with Chuck on and off for the better part of my first eight years in Nashville, and he still calls me from time to time to this day to play with him if my schedule permits. I ended up performing at the Grand Ole Opry and Opry at the Ryman with Chuck in excess of about 17 to 20 times. And without fail, every time, and no matter how many times I've gotten to do it, it never ever gets even remotely old. It remains one of the highest honors for me. Note, the Grand Ole Opry is an American weekly live country music radio broadcast and a several nights per week performance held at the Opry House in Nashville, Tennessee. It was founded on November 28, 1925, as a one-hour radio barn dance on WSM. It is the longest-running radio broadcast in U.S. history. Dedicated to honoring country music and its history, the Opry showcases a mix of famous singers and contemporary chart-toppers performing country, bluegrass, Americana, folk, and gospel music, as well as comedic performances and skits. It attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors from around the world, and millions of radio and internet listeners. In 1939, it debuted nationally on NBC Radio. The Opry moved to its most famous former home, the Ryman Auditorium, in 1943. As it developed in importance, so did the city of Nashville, which became America's country music capital. Membership in the Opry remains one of country music's crowning achievements. Since 1974, the show has been broadcast from the Grand Ole Opry House east of downtown Nashville with an annual three-month winter foray back to the Ryman from 1999 to 2020, and again for shorter winter residencies beginning in 2023. In addition to the radio programs, performances have been sporadically televised over the years as well. Some of the Grand Ole Opry's most historic moments happened inside Ryman Auditorium. Hank Williams made his debut there. Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn, Willie Nelson, and Dolly Parton became Opry members. Elvis Presley made his only Opry appearance there. Johnny Cash became a member, met his wife, and during one infamous show, broke all the footlights at the front of the stage inside Ryman Auditorium. The Gatlin brothers, Ricky Skaggs, Reba McIntyre, Randy Travis, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, Vince Gill, Emmylou Harris, 
Martina McBride, Brad Paisley, Dirks Bentley, Trace Adkins, Carrie Underwood, Montgomery Gentry, Blake Shelton, Keith Urban, Darius Rucker, and countless others have all graced the Opry stage. I once held the door open for Ricky Skaggs when I was on my way into the Opry to play one night. The interesting thing about performing there is that most of the time, any given artist and his or her band only gets to do two songs. Although several times during the winter months at Opry at the Ryman, we got to play three songs with Chuck Wicks. And during that time, there was also an early and a late show. So we got to do the same three songs twice in the same night. An Opry performance is almost over before you realize you've even started. It goes so quickly. I learned after the first few times of being there to really focus in from the first second I get on stage to the very last as I walk off. I also look forward to the time hanging out in the dressing room beforehand. I usually make a point of showing up a little early there to take in the vibe. These tactics never really make the time on stage seem less brief, but they definitely burned the most recent appearances into my memory just a little bit more. All musicians use the house amps that are already on stage and dialed in. Guitar players, of course, supply their own pedal boards, and there are stagehands that help to get these personal items on and off. The drummer uses the Opry house drum kit, and there's no sound check of any kind. It's as on the fly as you can possibly get. Artists and bands are shuffled on and off really quickly. You're rarely even on stage for a minute before you're being introduced and launching into your first song. Without a proper sound check, it's also slightly nerve-wracking, as you never really know how your onstage monitor mix is going to be, or who you'll be able to hear or not hear in the band. And it's vastly different every single time. I learned early on that my eyes are nearly as important as my ears when I'm on stage in situations like that. If you can't hear anything, you need to watch people for cues. There's also an insanely talented Opry house band comprised of Nashville music veterans on hand. There were a few times where Chuck wasn't able to get a full roster of guys to play for a given appearance, so we used one or more of the Opry house guys to fill in. In those cases, we were allotted a brief window of time just prior to the show to run through the songs backstage with whichever house band member or members we would be using. And they were never anything but totally top-notch and pro all the way. And really nice guys, too. The second time I played at the Opry, my parents were able to make it to Nashville to come check out the show. Chuck was kind enough to get them all-access passes. They came and hung out beforehand backstage with us as we warmed up in the dressing room and they got to watch us play up close and personal from side stage. This was perhaps one of the most meaningful and special experiences of my entire life. My dad was like a kid in a candy store wandering around backstage. He was smiling ear to ear looking at the old photos in the backstage hallways of the famous people who have played there through the years. He also struck up more than a few conversations with the Opry House musicians. He was right at home. My mom, too, was absolutely awestruck. It was a really sweet thing to witness. She used to listen to the early Grand Ole Opry on the radio when she was just a little girl, so this was completely mind-blowing for her, and I loved seeing it. And I instantly recognized something in both of them that I'm not sure I ever saw in all the years I was playing in bars and clubs and other venues when they would come out to see me. There was immense pride, but there was also tremendous relief. They always wanted me to follow my passion in life, and they were always supportive. Despite this, I'm sure that they worried often about me, and for good reason. It meant so much to me to see them both relax as they finally realized and accepted that their kid was going to be okay. Two. 
two, the Jimi Hendrix chicken wings incident. I moved to Nashville when I was in my early 40s. Looking back, I'm not even sure how I had enough energy or belief left to pull off such a thing. There was a short interview segment with Richie Sambora, longtime guitarist for Bon Jovi, that aired on the Yamaha's soundcheck program that Exploding Boy was a part of in the early 90s. They asked him what he believed the key to success in the music business was. His reply was simple. Basically, don't give up. Don't quit. The longer you stay with something, the more your chances of achieving that thing go up. It made sense to me at the time, and I guess I've always believed that I'd break through and make something of myself at some point. I just wasn't sure exactly what that thing was, or how or when it would happen as time continued to move on. My vision of my future in the music business morphed and changed considerably over the years. It had to. I think if I were going to give one piece of advice to any younger up-and-coming musicians, it would be to allow yourself to be as fluid and as adaptable as you possibly can. Don't lock yourself into one rigid vision for your future. I have news for you. It won't look or feel anything like you imagine along the way. And that's if you ever even get there. If you can learn to enjoy the ride and just go where things lead you, you'll be much better off. And this applies to all things in life. After all, the saying is true. Happiness is a journey, not a destination. In my experience, the universe tends to fight you when you try to grip the steering wheel too tightly. In my early years, I envisioned a career where I would hopefully become a major label artist with Exploding Boy. I was a lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter. That was my identity. After a while, that picture started to change when the band broke up, and I found myself as a solo artist who wrote songs and made solo records. I started moving toward production and engineering for other artists after that, and I then reached a point where a record deal and even a career as an artist started to become less and less likely simply because of my age. It's a young person's business for the most part, after all. Always has been. That was an extremely hard thing to let go of for me, but I managed to do it. By the time I had moved to Nashville, I had resigned myself to the fact that I'd have to adapt once again. I knew I could be a sideman for other artists. I knew I could play guitar and keyboards and be a backing vocalist for touring acts. I believed I could do it. I knew I was capable of performing at the highest levels if only I could get a foot in the door. It no longer needed to be my vision or even my thing for me to enjoy doing it. A bad day playing music is still better than a good day doing anything else, in my opinion. No matter what, I could still write and record my own music and do things completely on my own terms, which is exactly what I've continued to do. Win-win. My goal now is to simply stay in the music business, no matter what that looks like. And you know what? This is the most successful and accomplished that I've ever been at any point in my career. And to think it only took me 36 years to get here. I'm still ready for any curveballs that might come my way. And in life, you're going to get curveballs. Bad things are always going to come your way. I've learned that it's how you choose to react and deal with them that makes the difference. That is the secret sauce. My final few years in Gainesville leading up to my move in 2013 had become very dark times for me. My youthful exuberance had begun to fade, and I found myself at the end of yet another chapter in my life. It began to feel a little to me like I'd overstayed my welcome. Just as it was at the end of the Exploding Boy era of my life, I still wasn't really advancing any kind of career in music for myself. 
I was just playing cover songs in bars, not making nearly enough money for my time, and drinking way too much. I was not on a healthy path. Where I once felt like I was impressing and winning over most of the audiences I played for in Florida, it seemed like some kind of seismic shift occurred in the attention span, the musical tastes, and the overall character of the crowds. Hard to put my finger on it, really. In 2002, I got to play two songs at an event called Gator Growl at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium in front of nearly 57,000 people. Gator Growl has been a University of Florida tradition for nearly 100 years. It is the largest student-run pep rally in the world. It marks the culmination of Homecoming Week at the university. A list of famous comedians, top-tier musicians, and bands far too long to include here as headline Gator Growl over the years. Look it up. It's crazy. With my friends drummer Tom Hurst and guitarist Chris Nix, along with a bassist named Ronnie Cates, who was a former member of Christian rock band Petra, we played American Girl by Tom Petty and my original song Spin to the enthusiastic stadium crowd. Up until then, it was the largest audience I had ever performed for. Video of this exists on YouTube if you want to look it up. Just search Michael J. Gator Growl 2002 and you'll find it. After this event, it was close to impossible for anyone to not have at least a small awareness of who I was in Gainesville, especially if you were a student. The exposure was incredible. This, however, may be where a lot of the problems got started for me. Being ruthlessly heckled or outright confronted by audience members became much more of a regular occurrence, and this didn't make for the best performances for me. It's never a good thing to go into playing a show feeling standoffish and defensive, but I did it a lot back then. Mind you, I was no stranger to bad reviews going all the way back. Exploding Boy did a cover of the song Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie, which appeared on our debut album, New Generation. A review in a publication called Alternative Press at the time had this to say. Rochester, New York band Exploding Boy covers Bowie's Ziggy Stardust and then ruins it by letting a girl sing it. But the band looks all male, so I'm confused. Try dealing with that at 19 years old when you suffer from crippling self-doubt and imposter syndrome. That was fun. After our appearance on the Jenny Jones show, we received some hate email. You could give three monkeys a guitar, a bass, and a set of drums, and they'd sound better than you. How dare you go on national television and suck so bad? And this little gem, which is still my personal favorite. I just saw you on Jenny Jones, and you suck. So fuck you. Bad reviews and internet trolls are one thing, but heckling is something entirely different. One night I was playing at a place called Lucy's in Gainesville. I had a regular gig there for many years. A guy who was playing pool in the front of the bar kept yelling, Play something that doesn't suck! Over and over. As always, I ignored it for just about as long as I possibly could until I just couldn't take it anymore. He would not shut the fuck up. I called the guy out over the PA system. No one is making you stay here, dude. I'm being paid to be here, though, so if you don't like it, you can leave. This guy wasn't going to take this lying down, and he had balls enough to approach me, pool cue in hand. He got right in my face, told me to fuck off, and then threateningly hit my guitar with the pool cue as he walked away. Thankfully, the owner, my dear friend Danny, was in the bar when all this went down, so he immediately made them pay their tabs and kicked them out. 
As you can imagine, they didn't take very kindly to this and raised as big a stink as they possibly could. After they had left, Danny came up to me and apologized for not getting rid of them sooner. Then he laughed as he showed me their bar receipt. The loud, angry guy didn't sign for his bill. On the tip line, he just wrote, Fuck you. Danny laughed and said, Little does he know that I legally have the right to charge him a 20% gratuity for an unclosed tab. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. Joke's on him. Karma can indeed be quite a bitch. There were many other incidents, of course. I used to play at a place called Gator City in Gainesville. A couple bouncers there told me one night that they overheard some frat guys talking about wanting to create a Kill Michael J website. Clearly, there were some hardcore haters. After telling me this and seeing the shocked expression on my face, they just said, Congrats, man, you've made it. People don't say that kind of shit unless you've made it. That one stuck with me for a while, too. I wasn't feeling too great about everyone in town knowing who I was if this is what was going to come along with it. There's nothing quite like feeling that you constantly have to look over your shoulder when you're out buying cereal on a Sunday morning. And it wasn't like I was walking around acting like I was God's gift to humanity either. On the contrary, I was just playing gigs, making a living, and always trying to do the best job that I could. My only competition was ever myself. I never really understood the absolute vitriol that some people came at me with. I even went so far on a few occasions as to try to become friends with people who heckled me. My mantra was always, if any of these people actually sat down with me and had a beer and a conversation, I guarantee that they'd come away after about 30 minutes feeling differently. They may still not like my music, but they wouldn't hate me. Hecklers weren't the only thing I dealt with. There were also drunk people. Lots and lots of really drunk people. One night at Gator City as I was finishing up an early happy hour set, a group of girls came in that were celebrating a 21st birthday for one of their friends. They all came up and crowded my stage area, and most of them could barely stand up straight, especially the birthday girl. They were being really obnoxious. This went on for a while. All of a sudden, the birthday girl stumbled and fell directly into my mic stand, knocking it over and rocketing the microphone straight at the bridge of my nose. It nearly knocked my lights out. This caused a huge explosion-like sound to echo through the PA system into the entire room as the microphone amplified its own collision with my face. It sounded like a cannon in a reverb chamber. The whole place spun around and looked to see what had happened. I stopped playing immediately and tried to shake things off as my eyes began to water. I also realized that there was a large cut almost right between my eyes that began bleeding pretty badly. I just stared in disbelief at the group of stumbling drunk girls, none of whom had even the slightest idea that anything was even wrong. Totally oblivious. I looked at them with complete disgust, and I said over the PA, Okay, fuck you, that's it, I'm done. And with that, I shut the PA off and started packing my stuff. I didn't even bother finishing my set. It normally would have taken me a lot longer to lose my cool, but on this night, I just had enough. I was in no mood. It wasn't cute and it wasn't charming. Not even remotely. On the flip side of the coin, one of the funniest cases of heckling happened one night at a little sports bar called Court of Heroes in Gainesville. Court, as we all affectionately used to call the place, was one of my longest standing regular gigs in Gainesville. It was a part of the Gumby's Pizza franchise with a bar tacked on 
and it was located in a little strip mall. I played there weekly for the better part of eight to nine years, if you can believe it. Court was the place where I would go most often to hang out and drink on nights off, or nights after earlier gigs would finish up. It was less than a half mile from my apartment at the time, so it was stumbling distance from my front door, and I stumbled a lot back then. Most of the regular clientele there were hospitality people who worked at other bars and restaurants in town. The audience from night to night was made up mostly of people I knew very well. These were my friends. These were my drinking buddies. Court of Heroes was like my version of Cheers. I loved everyone there, and they loved me. It was like a big extended family. On 9-11, the actual 9-11, very shortly after I had moved to town and in the early days of that regular gig, I wasn't sure that they were going to even be open that night, let alone want any kind of live music. I called in that day to double-check, and the manager told me to come in for sure. People were going to need some place to go. Business as usual. I'm still convinced that night was the definitive thing that bonded me with all the regulars there for life. I don't think I played a full set of consecutive songs that night. It was about 20 mini-sets of several songs here and there. I wasn't really sure how to even perform. Everyone in the United States was in a collective state of shock, and for good reason. So, I simply got on the mic at the beginning of the night and said, I'm not exactly sure how to do this tonight. This cannot be a celebration of any kind after what's happened today. So, if any of you have a song you want to hear, just let me know and I'll play it. And if not, we can all just hang out and drink and be with each other and try to make some sense of what we all went through this morning. And that's exactly how things went down. I'd play a few tunes, I'd take a break and I'd go hang out and talk to people and have a drink or two. Then someone would ask for something, so I'd get back up and play more, and so on. This was made far more difficult at the time as the bank of TVs almost directly in front of me that were usually tuned into ESPN and the like were now showing news coverage and video from the most horrific events of earlier that day on what seemed like an endless loop. I still have people that were there that night, 22 years ago, that have reached out occasionally to tell me how much my presence and my comfort meant to them and how they'd never forget it. These were my people at this bar. I was even close with most of the staff and the owners there. These are all important details leading up to what happened there the night of the infamous chicken wing incident, which I'll tell you about right now. I used to do an acoustic version of the song Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. It was nothing at all like the original. It was my own interpretation, but I loved playing it, and it usually went over pretty well. On this night, there was a girl sitting right up front that seemed thoroughly irritated from the very first second that I started playing it. About halfway through the song, she walked up and placed a bar napkin on the ledge in front of me. Scrawled sloppily in bold letters was the following. You should never, ever play Jimi Hendrix, signed The Critic. I tried to laugh this off, but I felt my hackles go up. When I finished playing the song, I asked over the mic, Who is the critic? I looked at the girl. Are you the critic? She said, yes, and copped a huge attitude with me. You just shouldn't ever play Jimi Hendrix. So I said over the PA, I'm really sorry you didn't like it, but I'm not sure what you want me to do about it at this point. Now, to set the scene properly for you, Court of Heroes was a very intimate place. The bar was less than six feet from where I would normally set up my gear. 
I played in a little corner on an elevated seating area between two tables that were affixed to the wall. So this little exchange had now gotten the full attention of every single person at the packed bar, who, as I'll remind you, were mostly my close friends and acquaintances. The girl continued to get more and more heated. She was clearly very drunk. The entire bar began to boo and hiss at her, which only served to work her up even more. At this point, she had now directed her attention and anger at all the people at the bar behind her that were now heckling her. She stood up and yelled, Fuck all of you! Any of you who like this guy playing guitar can fuck off. You all suck just like he does. This drew an even bigger boo. No sooner had the last syllable of those words left her mouth when a veritable avalanche of half whole and fully eaten chicken wings started flying at the girl and into my little corner of the bar. This was followed by aftershocks of pizza, mozzarella sticks, and many other kinds of food and condiments. Everyone was just throwing everything in reach mercilessly at this girl, and she was only getting more and more pissed off. Then she began throwing punches. Two of my friends, a guy named Adam, who was also a musician, and one of the bartenders, a guy named Jared, quickly got things under control. They grabbed the girl by the arms and began walking her toward the front door. She was writhing and screaming and kicking and swearing at them, so they then physically picked her up and carried her to the front door. It was an insane display. Management had clearly decided that it was time for her to leave, and since there were no bouncers at the bar, Adam and Jared had the job. As I recall, Adam took several pretty hard punches to the side of his head before they almost threw this girl out the front door. Then they locked it behind her to make sure that she wasn't coming back in. As soon as the front door was latched, the whole place erupted in crazed laughter and extended applause. All I could do was laugh. What the fuck just happened? When some people don't like something, they really don't like it, huh? The entire bar had come to my defense. It was something to behold. And just like that, Chicken Wing Girl, as she'll forever be known, became the craziest person to ever heckle me in my entire career. Three. You mess with one, you mess with them all. I dealt with a lot of arrogance directed at me from many of the college crowds I played for mostly from male members of the audiences. Having said that, I was also at times shown tremendous support and kindness by many of them. I hesitate to make blanket statements on anything in life, but I made a lot of observations over the years. And I get it. Being 18 to 20-something is a challenging time in life. People are still figuring themselves out, and it can be scary. One key thing that I observed during my solo acoustic years was that if a crowd leaned heavier towards female attendees, it was almost always a really fun night. Girls, in fact, do just want to have fun. For the most part, anyway. If the crowd consisted of fewer females and more males, I would most often be dealing with male hecklers on those nights, or aggressive guys. Dudes could sometimes be real fucking assholes. I inferred that this was because the guys in the crowd felt that they needed to somehow compete with me for the attention of the girls on any given night if there were fewer of them there. Hey man, I didn't ask for this attention. I'm not interested in your girlfriend. This is my job. 
And if a crowd consisted of a much higher percentage of guys, also no problems, smooth sailing. This happened too many times to be just a coincidence. Keep in mind that performers have the best seat in the house for observing how crowds behave. Sometime in 2010, I had a regular Wednesday evening gig at a place called The Mellow Mushroom in Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville was just over an hour drive for me, and I happily made the trip each week. Wednesday nights at the Mellow Mushroom were billed as half-priced wine night. I would usually set up on the semi-enclosed patio outside to entertain the winos each week. The built-in crowd at this place was one of the most interesting collisions of social and economic groups that I've ever experienced. It was located smack in the middle of a whole bunch of different communities. It was a strange combo of very wealthy people, college kids, total rednecks, and people from urban communities. As much of a recipe for disaster as this might sound like, there were surprisingly very few, if any, problems. At least none that I ever encountered. People coexisted really well. One night on the patio, most of the tables were full, and people seemed to be enjoying themselves a little more than usual. There was a large group of college people at the back of the patio that knew me from Gainesville, and were often there every single week cheering me on. I also noticed a large table up front with a group of some of the most rugged, muscular-looking guys with either their wives or girlfriends who were seriously digging what I was doing and were also being very kind and very attentive. A large group of college girls filtered in toward the middle of my third set. There were two squirrely-looking guys with them who just wouldn't stop talking the whole time. They were obnoxious. The entire table of girls just looked annoyed and embarrassed by them. At one point, one of these guys started yelling things like, Make it stop! And you suck! He really thought he was being funny. He was, in fact, not. My usual MO in these instances was to try and ignore obnoxious people and just keep playing. But he kept yelling insults for the better part of at least 20 minutes until I had no choice but to call him out over the mic. Hey, you! Yeah! You! The yelling guy. What's your fucking problem, dude? You're ruining the night for everyone else here. If you think you can get up here and do a better job than me, we'll let the crowd decide and the stage is yours. Otherwise, either shut the fuck up or leave. Calling people's bluff this way would usually shut things down pretty quickly. On this night, however, this fucking guy stood right up and said, I'll play, and started walking toward the stage. I remember thinking, Okay, dickhead, I'll let you play. But I was also thinking that if he broke my guitar, he was going to get beaten with the remaining pieces of it before he could make it off the patio. As he made his way toward me, someone in the group of people at the back yelled, We've got your back, MJ! And then immediately, someone in the group of guys up front also chimed in, We've got your back too, man! I didn't feel so bad now. I handed the guy my guitar and said, Okay, man. Stage is yours. Let's hear what you got. As he took the guitar from my hands, he actually had the balls to say, You play guitar all right, but you can't sing. Okay, man. Whatever. Another observation. Aspiring singers back then always told me I couldn't sing. Aspiring guitar players always told me I couldn't play guitar. 100% of the time. As soon as he started playing and singing, it was very clear that he was just fucking terrible. Big surprise there. And make no mistake, if he got up and totally smoked me, I would have given it up for him. But he was awful. And the crowd on the patio let him know it. 
Other people's talent was never once threatening to me. Their insecurities were, but only because they presented outwardly as arrogance and sometimes aggression. Immediately after he was done embarrassing himself, he handed me back my guitar. He and the other guy that was with him at the table then hightailed it out of there about as fast as I've ever seen anyone leave a place. The girls all stayed, which I thought was hilarious. I played one last song for the night to close things out and thanked everyone for their kindness and support. And a big ol' fuck you to the loudmouthed guy who left. I went to the back of the patio and thanked the Gainesville group for always being so cool and for coming out every week. Then I made my way over to the tough-looking bunch of big dudes and their ladies sitting up front. I introduced myself and I thanked them profusely. During the course of this brief interaction, I found out that they were a group of combat search-and-rescue marines who were just back from the Middle East and they were having a celebratory night out. Holy shit. Combat search-and-rescue marines? So you guys are even more badass than the actual Marines? They laughed. You were never in any danger tonight, man. We loved your music. We would have taken care of those guys if they fucked with you even a little. I bet you would have. Thanks for your service, guys. Semper Fi. It pays to have thick skin in this business, but I don't think I've ever really developed that muscle very well. My heart is ten sizes too big, and that's the reason I'm an artist. I found an interesting quote by comedian Trevor Noah. I don't think I have thick skin, but I heal fast. It's easy to break through, but I heal fast. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening. <laughs>